effectively, I was told at 43 was this is just the way things are. And I think that's kind of the conventional prevailing wisdom that's out there like, oh, aging is expected to have things start to break down. And I don't believe in that. I believe that if we honor our bodies the way that they're intrinsically designed to thrive, that we're going to do a much better job with aging. I don't want to say per se in reverse, but honoring our physiology and being able to support our bodies throughout our lifetime. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. Today, my guest is Cynthia Thurlow, a nurse practitioner who worked in clinical medicine, both in ER and cardiology for nearly 20 years. And she has just released her first book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. Today, we are going on a, we'll call it a nerd sermon on fasting for women. We talk all about the impacts of fasting uh, in terms of its um, ability to augment mitochondrial function. We talk about AMPK, we talk about mTOR, and of course, most importantly, we talk about how it is different for women and all different types of women. Uh, so we talk about women who are in their reproductive years, we talk about women who are in perimenopause, and we talk about menopausal women as well. And we talk about some of the different hormones that can be, that can go awry let's say, if we are not taking care of ourselves in the way that we should using hormetic stressors like fasting. So we cover insulin, we talk about cortisol, we talk about testosterone, we talk about estrogen, we talk about oxytocin, which was a very interesting uh, part of the conversation that I enjoyed quite a bit. And we finished with Cynthia's own, her own personal cadence for fasting. Uh, we also discuss the different types of fasts. And if you are new to fasting, or if you want to take your fasting practice up a notch, we also discuss that as well. Overall, a great conversation. Cynthia has a lot of a very similar, uh, very aligned approach to uh, health and well-being that I do in that we want to be careful to not overgeneralize, but also to nuance the protocols that we give for our beautiful men and women. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Cynthia Thurlow. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. 
All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just tastes like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Cynthia, Cynthia Thurlow, we'll say your official name. Welcome to The Better Show. I'm so happy to welcome you on here. Yeah, so excited to be here. Um, we were just chatting in uh, in the pre-chat about your new book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see the blow up of the book behind Cynthia. And um, I'm really excited to be talking to you today around fasting for women and how we can, as women, gain all of the benefits that fasting has to offer. And we'll talk about what all of those are today, um, but nuance them, of course because we're not little men and we are unique in our own beautiful way. So uh, really, really excited to talk about this book. And maybe before we get into it, uh, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording about how books are like babies, but I would love for you to maybe outline why you wrote this book. Like what was the impetus? What was the, we, I, I feel like there's a lot of clinicians that you and I and colleagues that you and I have where you just know they have like a body of work that they just need to get out into the world. Um, so tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book. Well, I think it really stems from the fact that despite being a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner, no one prepared me for what was to come in middle age. And I was seemingly doing all the right things. I was exercising and low carbing and, you know, probably not managing my stress or my sleep well enough. And so I flew into the wall when I hit perimenopause. And I just recall feeling really frustrated that I was not aware of the changes that were going to be happening in my body, not my mother, not my GYN, not my midwife, no girlfriends had ever talked to me about these things. And so I, I think that, you know, both TED Talks that I've done were really born out of a desire to educate women about their bodies and to do it in a way that allowed them to be hopeful, as opposed to, I think the the narrative around middle age in many ways is shameful and negative and, oh, you're going to gain weight. You're going to get bloated. You're going to get inflamed. You're not going to be able to sleep and forget about sex and all these things. And so I really wanted to change the narrative. And I think initially it started with the N of one the recognition that as I was hitting the wall, if you will, I had to reinvent everything I was doing. I couldn't exercise as intensely as I had once done. I had never been made aware that we should be exercising based on where we are in our menstrual cycle. Um, I really prioritizing high quality sleep, anti-inflammatory nutrition, eating less often. And so I, I came to fasting really out of curiosity for myself and I felt so good so quickly that I recognized that this is something I should be sharing with my female clients and patients. And, you know, for me, it really meant leaving clinical medicine. It really meant taking a, an abrupt departure from my mothership, if you will. I, I love everything about medicine, but I felt that I could make a larger impact talking to people about lifestyle medicine as opposed to prescribing medications. And for anyone that's listening that isn't familiar with my background, my whole background is in ER medicine and cardiology. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I like complicated puzzles. I, and I felt like a lot of my patients were like a complicated puzzle. But more, more than that, I love the connection with people. And so it was a very hard decision to leave and create my own business. 
but I realize now that's really exactly the path I needed to go on. And so um, this book was really born out of uh, a message that I felt like women really needed to hear, you know, less about medication and more about proactive empowerment um, and educating women about their bodies, about their menstrual cycle. I, I told a colleague the other day, I'm, I'm shocked that I know now more about the menstrual cycle than I ever did in my peak fertile years as a teenager, as a young clinician. And that's really sad. Like that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the norm. And when I talk to other women, even other clinicians, unless they were a GYN or a midwife, they all felt the same way that they learned very little. It was very clinical about this is the way, this is the physiology and there's no way you can fine tune biohack, do any of that. And so I think on a lot of levels, I want subsequent generations to feel differently about not only their bodies and about their physiology, but also aging as well, because I think that's a large part of the platform that I've, I unknowingly am now part of is talking to women about how to, I don't want to use the word biohack because it sounds so masculine, but how we can optimize, optimize, yeah, (laughs) optimize how we can optimize our hormones and optimize our health instead of feeling like everything happens to us. I want women to feel empowered to be able to make things happen. And that's a very different narrative than what I kind of fell into as a, as a clinician, as a woman. Um, You know, the other piece that I found intensely frustrating was how many male physicians said to me, Cynthia, you're 43. Maybe this is just the way things are. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not acceptable. Including my husband, who's a wonderful guy. He was like, maybe you're supposed to be 10 pounds heavier. And I said, no, I'm not. Um, You know, this weight gain is a symptom of something being out of balance. And so that was, you know, really, there there were many variables that got me to where I am now, but a lot of it was out of frustration and just being feisty. I was like, if I feel this way, I know I'm, I'm one of thousands, if not millions of women that feel this way. And why not utilize this platform to be able to help more people um, as opposed to just sitting in an office writing prescriptions? Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're saying echoes, I think so, you know, the, the, the temperament of so many women that we've been told, even by I mean, I have friends who are OBGYN. I've had OBGYNs on the pod and I will continue to do so because, um, because I think that their contribution and their body of work is important. But even in their schooling, by their own admission, they don't talk about how to alter food for their, menst- for, for their patients' men- menstrual cycles. They don't talk about how to alter exercise or fast differently. They're just told, even if they are at all, which is even you know, a thing in and of itself, fasting is a hormetic stress, it's good for you. But there's actually no sexually dimorphic advice. Like there's no difference between the, the guys should be doing it this way. The girls should be doing it this way. Um, so, you know, to your point, and I think this is why your body of work is so important. We do need to be speaking to that transition has been particular perimenopause. Like I love that your story is around, you know, you sort of hit, you know, the wall, as you said it at 43 and, and was like, this can't, this can't be it. Like I can't, it can't just be like, I've hit the peak top of the mountain and I'm just going to slide down into nothingness now and misery. Um, so I applaud that. And, um, just for my listeners, for my Bettys, um, your Ted talk on intermittent fasting, uh, what is it? 8 million views. I think it has on 
And the only reason why I know this number is that I have a teenage son who monitors it. Yeah, he's like, you're a YouTuber. <laughs> 10.5 million. 10.5. Amazing. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, it's kind of. I mean, crazy. that's hitting a nerve, right? That's, that's hitting on something that is worthwhile, uh, is, is worthwhile exploratory research. So, um, okay. So let's, let's talk, let's get into the book a little bit. Uh, the book, as I mentioned, intermittent fasting transformation is the name of the book. Um, lots of stated benefits on fasting, right? In particular, um, where we talk about it, fasting being a deviation from the typical Western, you know, standard American way of eating or, or Western way of eating. Cause I'm up in Canada. We do the same thing. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> snacking or grazing from the moment you wake up to the moment you, you know, you go to, go to sleep. Um, you're eating right before sleep. There's no time restricted eating. So let's, before we, uh, I, and I, I told you in the pre-chat, I kind of want to talk about mitochondria and stuff, but let's talk about the different types of fasting. You outline these in your book. Uh, it's a little later in the book where you talk about kind of some of the different ways to nuance fasting and we'll get into perimenopause and, and cyclical fasting as well. But let's just talk about the different types of fasts so our, our listeners can kind of get a handle of where we're going with this conversation. Yeah. And so I think the easiest way to start is to say that the more traditional modalities are like a 16-8, which is 16 hours fasted with an eight-hour feeding window. And I use that as a barometer because that's the goal to get people to commit to becoming fat adapted and be able to do it successfully. And from there, there's a springboard to so many variations of fasting. And I think it's important for people to understand that most people don't go from a standard American diet and being a couch potato to going to a 16-8 effortlessly. There's a lot of back and forth to get people there. And, and I definitely walk people through. So I say, it's like, put the training wheels on because we're going to, you know, we're going to get some support along the way. But another very popular um, and talked about quite a bit in, you know, women's groups is OMAD. So one meal a day. And I think OMAD is, is definitely can be part of a fasting regime it's not something I recommend for women in particular to be sustained because there's just no way to get enough macronutrients into your diet in one meal. I can't think of any woman that can eat hundred grams of protein as a starting point in one meal. Um, so I think that it's great as a variation, you've gone on vacation, you've overeaten, maybe you went to a celebration and you decided you're just going to have a massive meal and call it a day. Um, it's not something that I'd like to see sustained. And I, and I see um, on social media, quite a few women that they get, and especially middle-aged women, they get to a point where maybe they aren't as hungry as they once were. And so one meal a day feels good because they're really hungry for that one meal. And then they're not hungry the rest of the day. And I have to continuously go back to, this is fine as a variation. This is not something we want to sustain. We're not going to be able to nourish our bodies. We're going to send the wrong signals to our brain. We're going to send the wrong signals to our mitochondria and everything else. Um, other variations are things like a 20 slash four, which for anyone that is familiar with, this is a little bit of a differentiator. Oftentimes I have people who swear they can get two meals in, in a four hour window. I don't know how that's possible, but I do see quite a few men that are able to get an entire day's worth of calories in the four hours. I don't see that necessarily being a, a sustainable long-term solution for a woman. Um, you'll oftentimes see a five, two, which I've seen this presented two different ways. You can have five days of a normal eating pattern, which might be three meals a day with two days of lower calories. Um, you know, ideally 
the research suggests less than 600 uh, for those two days for men each day, 500 for women. I think it's far easier just to fast every day than have a day where I'm going to really compress into one meal. Um, you can also see a 5-2 as a variation of fasting um, and then having two days where you are doing a 24-hour fast. So maybe Tuesday and Thursday, you do a 24-hour fast and the other five days, you're having a normal eating pattern. But as you can see, the one thing about fasting in general, which I love, is that it can be flexible. So you may, throughout the, the course of a month or throughout the course of a year, you may employ some of these strategies. And the idea is that you can decide for yourself. It's like pulling a lever. Like, this is the lever I want to do today. This is what's going to honor, which is going to work for my physiology, what's going on in my personal and professional life. And this makes a lot of sense. And then maybe the following week, you may transition. And I do encourage a lot of um, variation in fasting once you're fat adapted, because as I know, we'll talk about hormetic stress is the right amount of stress in the right amount at the right time. And depending on where you are in your cycle or beyond, um, you may need different types of variations in your fasting regimen. Uh, I've had Dr. Jason Fung on the show, who I know uh, has been on your show as well. And one of the things that he said that I really liked was this idea that fasting is sort of diet agnostic. Like you can do, you can be paleo, you can be keto, you can be insert diet here, right? Like whatever diet you want to follow, AIP, whatever. Um, but fasting fits into each of them without disturbing, uh, you know, the the agreed upon uh uh, you know, guideposts that make up that diet, uh, which I think is really important. Um, and so I like how you've outlined these time, like, you know, the 16, eight, the OMAD, the 24, the five, two, uh, which just as an aside was super popular a couple of years ago. It's like, it's sort of fallen out of vogue. I feel like, mm -hmm. I feel like the 16, eight and the 24 and the OMAD, those are really, you know, and, and I, I, I have long, like I do 12, 12 sometimes like the week before my period, like there's no way that I'm doing a 16, eight. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. it's like a 10, 14, yeah. uh, but the five, two has really fallen out of vogue. And I don't, I don't mind it so much. Like, I don't mind, you know, that you can say, okay, maybe for two days I'll restrict my calories or bring them down. Um, but I do agree with you. I think that day, like doing something on the daily. So it's sort of in your hat, like it's habitual for you is, is, is great. Do you, do you dis differentiate it? all between, um, one of the things that I like to talk about is like water only, like herbal tea, you know, I would classify that as like no calories, like a non-caloric fast and something like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, when you look at Walter Longo's research and he has like fasting memetics where he has you doing five days of, and I forget the calories now, but it's like one day is like 600, one day is 700, one day is 400, whatever. Do you, do you differentiate between that? Or do you like to, do you think for just ease of understanding, is it better to sort of stick to the, the time lever as an initial inquiry into fasting? That's a great question. I, I think for ease of ease of understanding and ease of comprehension, I think that sticking to a time frame with a with a clean fast, like you know the bitter teas, the coffee, the water, is a great starting point. I would say probably once a week I get questions about you know do I do prolon? Do I recommend prolon? Um, and I always say I think it's always in the context of what's right for you. What are your goals? You know what are you looking for? Um, obviously like longevity research, it's, you know, that's very different than, I guess it's like, I, I see them very differently and I see the values of both, but I feel like, 
if I can get people to subscribe to the concept of eating less often as a starting point, then we can always entertain the possibility of um, longer fast. I mean, I personally, because I had a 13 day hospitalization in 2019, um, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around not eating for a period of time. Although I understand like intellectually, I think it's triggering for me. So I, I always like to be transparent and say that I haven't done any long fast since that long hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do value uh, Walter's research. I know that David Sinclair talks a lot about um, you know, the same kind of concepts in terms of longevity and protein restriction. I tend to be so slanted towards protein consumption that it, that's where the differentiator is. Although again, I, I see the utility, the research um, and the value in what they're doing. I just think it, it becomes, I start kind of looking at like what's most important and maintaining and building muscle versus the longevity piece. And so I, I just haven't quite made complete sense of all that and how to kind of put it together. Um, but I definitely, I definitely value Walter's, Walter's uh, research. I really appreciate your comments because I have the same cognitive dissonance, right? Like <laughs> I understand that periodic protein restriction, uh, like we might be talking about an intermittent fasting can upregulate. We're going to talk about mitochondria. We're going to talk about AMP kinase, autophagy, et cetera. But as you just mentioned, Um, I do think that it is very important for women in particular to be Mm -hmm. thinking about muscles. And when we're, and we're going to talk perimenopause today, ladies, and like perimenopause, like that is your preparatory phase for menopause. And if you don't have muscle, when you have, even if your estrogen levels and, you know, your testosterone levels are fluctuating, they, you still have them. They're still anabolic. You can still build a lot of muscle. If you don't do it in your perimenopausal years, it's not that you can't when you're menopausal. It's just orders of magnitude more difficult because now you are in a low estrogen, permanent low estrogen, permanent low testosterone uh, environment, save for like bioidenticals or HRT or, or, or whatnot. So I do think that muscle and, you know, and, and bone health, right? Like muscle and bones, they're twinsies. Like you have good, like you're, you know, mechanically stressing the muscle. You're also driving bone density. So women, again, the osteoporosis, uh, you know, concern, you know, my, um, uh, one of my, um, aunts, um, she recently was at, uh, like a Costco and shopping and fell over and luckily like nothing happened. She's fine, but it could have been a very, I mean, this woman is like a machine. She she walks, (laughs) like she walks like a boss, right? She's always walking up and down stairs. She doesn't take the elevator, but I, I, I wonder if she wasn't like that and she didn't have, you know, the proprioception and the muscle mass and the bone density, what that might've looked like if she tripped over something when she would like tripped over a crate or something when she was at Costco. So what would have happened, you know, yeah. to her hip, let's say, or her arm when she like had her arm outstretched as she was falling down. So very, very important. I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I'm like, and don't, and the other piece, we won't get into it now. We'll come back to your book, but I just want to say, women, we need more protein as we age to overcome mm-hmm. that anabolic resistance that naturally sets in. So we'll have some offline discussions around that. <laughs> but all that to say, I agree with you and I still haven't sorted it out either. Cause I think there's truth in both camps, right? There's truth in the protein restriction and how that might lead to, uh, you know, sirtuin activation, et cetera. So 
With that said, let's let's dive into some granularity with some of the benefits that fasting uh, affords us. And I wanted to talk about the mitochondria to start in particular. Um, and you know, because I mentioned that, maybe we'll just start with sirtuins. Like, what does what are the effects that intermittent fasting has on our mitochondria, and then follow on uh, how that's related to sirtuin activation. I think it's a really important discussion because although, you know, we get granular, I think that it helps people understand that fasting is so much more than changing body composition. So when we're talking about the mitochondria, we're talking about the powerhouses of our cells. And it's humbling to me, the more I understand about mitochondria, um, the more I'm humbled that they work so effectively or should work so effectively. So I think after the age of 40, I think 50% of the population has mitochondrial dysfunction. And so mitochondrial dysfunction is our, our impl- is implicated in nearly any chronic disease state. And so obviously, if you have metabolic disease, if you have um, cancer, I mean, there are so many, so much that's impacted by the mitochondria not working effectively. But the beauty is that when we are in a non-fed state, we get upregulation of autophagy and mitophagy and where we can, our body can effectively go in and get rid of these disease disordered cells, organelles, et cetera. I was liken it to taking out the trash. Um, but the only way that that's really potentiated and magnified is when we're in a non-fed state. And so I get questions all the time, and I'm sure you do too, you know, when does autophagy kick in? When when does this mitophagy, when we go in and our body can really potentiate this? And I always remind people that eating less often has so many benefits that as an example, like if you go 12 hours without eating, are you upregulating autophagy? Not a whole lot, but you're still getting benefit from it. So when people really want to get nuanced, like when do things really ramp up? And I always say the longer you fast the more autophagy you will potentiate. So over like 18, 24 hours, that's when you'll see significant increases in this. When we're talking about sirtuin activity, again, this is another thing that is upregulated when we're in this non-fed state. And you mentioned some of David Sinclair's work where he's really looking, there are many types of sirtuins, um, but in a protein uh, fasted state, we know that um, it will, you know, there are these two kind of opposing forces, like we're looking at autophagy and mTOR activation. And this is another thing people get very, they want to get very granular, like, well, as soon as you eat, then you knock out this and this has to be upregulated. And I think it's really much more nuanced than that, that the foods we choose to break our fast with or the foods that we have on board in our bodies can upregulate or downregulate some of these processes. And what we really want is balance. Ultimately, that's what we're looking for. Like, obviously, if you're chronically, if you're overeating all the time, you're getting very little autophagy. So you've got lots of disease disordered cells that are hanging around that could potentially go on to create problems, you know, health issues versus if you're, you know, starving and you have no mTOR activation. I mean, guess what's going to happen? Your body's going to go in and break down muscle to use as fuel. This is what happened to me three years ago. I hate saying like I was a good case study of this, but you don't eat for 13 days. Guess what happens? Your body catabolizes, breaks down muscle in order to feed your body. And this is not what happens when you fast. Um, that That's called starvation. And that was because I was sick and I couldn't eat. But this is an important distinction to talk about finding balance between these different mechanisms in the body that are designed to, to maintain homeostasis, to make us better, stronger, more resilient. And when we eat too frequently, 
we knock out that balance. If we don't eat enough food in the right amounts at the right of time, we can knock out that balance. So really understanding that on a cellular level with the mitochondria, that we have all these upregulation, downregulation of these mechanisms that if they're properly balanced, um, just like hormones and other things in the body, we can feel more energetic, more vibrant, sleep better, maintain muscle, digest our food better. Um, I, I think it's it's also like very helpful for people to understand because they hear the word mitochondria, mitophagy. It's just really speaking about cellular health. And we want to do as much as we can to maintain and support cellular health because every single um, organ, organelle in the body is made up of thousands, if not millions of cells. So the healthier each individual cell is, this is probably asking for too much, but the healthier we can make ourselves, the better we are going to feel, the more active, the more we can contribute, the more we can serve others, as opposed to what effectively I was told at 43 was this is just the way things are. And I think that's kind of the conventional prevailing wisdom that's out there like, oh, aging is expected to have things start to break down. And I don't believe in that. I believe that if we honor our bodies, the way that they're intrinsically designed to thrive, that we're going to do a much better job with aging. I don't want to say per se in reverse, but honoring our physiology and being able to support our bodies throughout our lifetime. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I like the word age. I like aging in reverse, but I agree with you. I think that the goal isn't to, you know, God help me. Like when I was 20, I was a complete idiot. Like I do not want to go back to being 20. Like I'm happy where I like the wisdom and my lived experiences, you know, I'm very happy where I am, but to your point around being, um, optimized and optimizing the mitochondria, let's say through tools like fasting, which is a hormetic stressor. So listener, we like my listeners know what this is. We talk about it all the time, but it's like a stress that's like, it's the Goldilocks stress, not too much, not too little, just enough. Right. Um, and to your point, when we think about, and this is kind of bringing back, uh, David Sinclair's, uh, research in here, when we activate sirtuins, when we, uh, when we are fasting regularly, we can also upregulate NAD, right. And you talk about this in the book really beautifully and such a beautiful, like, this is very complicated, by a lot, like this is very complicated pathways and you make it so accessible for people. But when we're fasting, you know, as we age, naturally that NAD molecule uh, starts to decline naturally with age. And I don't know about you, but when I learned about NAD in school, it was like this just like stupid throwaway molecule in the Krebs cycle wasn't really important. Um, and you know, what we've sort of come to understand now is that the more NAD you have, you know, the better and the more efficient that Krebs cycle, which is the process by which we're creating the ATP um, can happen. And fasting is one of the ways that we can augment, that we can improve the NAD production. Yes. 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 Okay. Let's talk a little bit about AMPK. Uh, this is another, um, again, complicated science, but you do it so well. Um, when we fast, um, maybe first just speak to AMPK in terms of like its role in the cell, right? When we have energy levels, I always look at it as kind of like the gauge on like the gas, right? It's like, do we have a lot of gas? Do we have, we're running out of gas, low in the tank. And then what happens, like what the role of AMPK is in the cell and then how fasting can benefit that as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, the irony is I think I did a, a presentation like last year and I was talking about a car in the gas tank, talking about AMPK as really that, because it, 
sometimes talking about an analogy makes it more tangible. And so when we're really talking about these scientific principles and we're talking about the role within the cell, I, I kind of think of it also as like a spark plug. So when we have AMPK activation, um, I feel like I'm tongue tied today. We have activation of AMPK. We're going to generate more energy in the cell. We're going to have more energy to potentiate outside of the cell. And this can be diminished, depleted by our lifestyle choices. This can be diminished, depleted by the lack of autophagy or, um, you know, the, the food choices that we make. So I always say that the lifestyle piece really plays a huge role in what is going on inside and outside the cell. And so the, the beautiful thing is that, um, you know, when we really think about how efficient the body can be in this non-fed versus fed state can upregulate, you know, these key kind of principles so that um, we can optimize. I mean, that's really, you know, use the word, but optimizing um, cellular energy to our advantage. And if we look at it, like with that car analogy, like when AMPK is properly at the levels it should be at, we're going to feel very differently than people that are dealing with mitochondrial dysfunction. That's at a level that where we're seeing with most metabolic diseases. I mean, certainly here in the United States, it's huge. And I'm sure most Westernized countries, it's the same way. We just don't recognize it as such. I think we get so fixated on, as one example, we get so fixated on a diagnosis without really thinking about the downstream, like what's really at fault um, what's really at fault, what's really going on here. And how did you get there? You know, how did you get there? Like you didn't wake up with mm -hmm. type two diabetes or you didn't wake up with mitochondria, you know, you didn't, or with uh, metabolic syndrome. You didn't, you didn't wake up with these things. This has been a slow mm -hmm. snowball that has gained and gained momentum over time. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think is important too. So let, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, let's move into hormones a little bit because I'm, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, there's a, you, in the book, you talk about pretty much, I think almost every hormone that's important. <laughs> like you talk <laughs> about like your sex hormones, metabolic hormones, uh, satiety and hunger signaling, thyroid, estrogen, project, like all of them, all of them. Um, and we don't have time, of course, like you're going to have to buy the book to, uh, to get all the juicy goodness in there. But there are a few that I would like to zero in on, um, that I'm just particularly fascinated with. Um, and I think insulin is a good uh, starting point to talk about. We were just talking, of course, about mitochondria and energy production. Insulin is the mediator, of course, that helps to bring the, well, in, you know, in the case of glucose uh, into the cell. So what is the, f I guess my question is, what what is the fate of of insulin levels um, during both a short fast. And by short, I usually define short as like under 24 hours. And then how does that differ, if any, from a longer fast that might be longer than 24 hours? I think a lot of that depends on the individual, um, how insulin sensitive they are. Um, you know, insulin, unfortunately, really gets a bad rap. In fact, people say all the time, like, oh, insulin's all bad. I'm like, no, insulin, when it's working efficiently and is sensitized, is a beautiful thing. And so we know with these longer fasts that you'll get, you know, you should, you should optimally get lowered insulin levels with potentiated fast, but insulin works along with glucagon. So, you know, as we are, have these lowered insulin levels, our body will secrete a hormone glucagon to keep our blood sugar stable. This is an, in a relatively insulin sensitive individual. We know that insulin is secreted in response to food, but if we're in a non-fed state over time, the hope is that while we are in this non-fed state, that we're going to keep those healthy insulin levels within this normal, like hormonal, like 
kind of hormetic balance along with glucagon. And you'll get upregulation of other key hormones like growth hormone. And you'll think about the fact, you know, leptin will be suppressed. Um, you think about the fact that, you know, ideally if your blood sugar is being properly maintained with a little bit of glucagon secretion over that 24 hours, that your insulin levels are going to be in this, you know, this state of homeostasis. And I think, you know, on so many levels that we're hoping that what we're going in is we're getting upregulation of autophagy, like in this non-fed state, we're getting upregulation in autophagy, we're getting more waste and recycling that's going on, getting rid of um, disease and disordered cells, organelles, et cetera. And, you know, the other thing that I think is so cool about insulin is that as we're maintaining this lowered insulin level state. Um, we're also upregulating the fat oxidation of ketones, which helps with diffusion across the blood brain barrier. And so one of the big benefits that I will oftentimes hear from not just my own patients, but other people that are fasting is that so much mental clarity, all this beta hydroxybutyrate that's being diffused across the blood brain barrier and how fantastic they feel. They have so much more energy, um, you know, getting to a point where they've suppressed those hunger mechanisms and feel like they feel so much better that this is something they can continue to potentiate. And then eventually getting to a point with longer fasts where you're getting upregulation and some stem cell activation, um, you know, improving digestive function, et cetera. I think, you know, one of the things we want to be thinking about first and foremost, no matter like sex, age, menstrual status, we want to be thinking about energy, right? Which is why I started off talk, wanting to talk to you about the mitochondria and AMPK and mTOR, because at the cellular level, this is where it really matters, right? When, if you don't have the ability to create energy, right? Or you're, you're, you can still create energy, but not optimally. You're going to feel, and so many women in their forties, I'm sure you hear this every single day in your group where we have people that are like, I just don't feel the way that I used to in my twenties. I have brain fog. I walk into a room. I can't remember why I walked into the room. Um, or my sleep is poor, or I have to take an afternoon hit of coffee because I'm just bagged after lunch. You know, we see these, um, very clear patterns of mm -hmm. energy worsening. Uh, mm -hmm. if you're not doing anything about it. And I wanted to start off with insulin because it directly affects our sex hormones. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm creating the path as we move towards talking more about perimenopause um, and menopause is, you know, when our insulin levels are dysregulated, of course, this is going to impact when we have, when we have chronically, and we'll say it this way, hyperinsulinemic state, when your insulin levels are too high, um, and I agree with you, insulin is a beautiful anti-catabolic, like it's a growth hormone, right? In context of muscle, we need insulin, thyroid, we need insulin. So it's not the bad guy, but what I think that we're talking about uh, in general is this metabolic mayhem and dysfunction that we see in our population, where we have this consumption of processed foods and fast foods, where we see this hyperinsulinemic state. And the reason why I wanted to start off with that is when you are hyperinsulinemic, we see increased levels of testosterone and increased levels of estrogen by way of reducing sex hormone binding globulin, right? So we have high insulin, which lowers our SHBG, which now allows for our sex hormones to run amok. And I wanted to just pause and talk, I wanted to um, get your thoughts on, uh, if you wanted to comment on PCOS. Um, this is the most common hormonal uh, 
issue that I see. Uh, I see sort of this general testosteroneization uh, mm. of our beautiful female population. And part of that is part of its roots are in this hyper insulinemic state. And I have found, at least with a ketogenic diet and fasting, like phenomenal results with that. I don't know if you wanted to add to that comment. Has that been your observation in, you know, with your patients, with your groups? What do you see with PCOS and fasting? Well, it's interesting that you, that you asked me this question because yesterday I had a menopausal female. So I have a smaller group where we do some lab testing and, uh, you know, I was going through her labs and I was like, you know, she's menopausal, she's 56 years old. Why is she on spironolactone? Not for blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so we entertained this whole conversation. I'm looking at her Dutch and I'm trying to figure out, you know, why she has so much free. Well, now it makes sense. She has so much circulating testosterone, can't lose, can't lose some weight. Um, and, and so I started asking, you know, what was it like when you tried to get pregnant with your daughters? Turns out they needed infertility. Um, you know, kind of down this rabbit hole of looking at like, I think you have been insulin resistant to a certain degree for a very long period of time. And here's why. And so I kind of walked her through, okay, your daughters are so many years old. You had to go through infertility. You've been on aldactone or spironolactone for anyone that's listening. It's a potassium sparing diuretic also used for high androgens. Her on her Dutch test, her androgen levels were still high. And I was trying to figure out like where all these pieces of the puzzle, I could see that it was not being aromatized estrogen. I could see that it was clearly staying kind of in its box, but the recognition when I said, okay, we need a glucometer. I'm like, these are the labs you need to do trying to explain to her that, you know, I think over time, and I think there's this misnomer that in particular PCOS women can have this throughout their lifetime, but it can be mitigated just enough. You know, she wasn't obese just enough. Um, that it, it wasn't fully appreciated. And on top of that, interestingly enough, she was on 1200 milligrams of progesterone orally every day. And I, and I was trying to explain to her, you know, this is not helping the insulin sensitivity piece. So I think for listeners to understand that you can be, um, you can be a PCOS or you can be thin, you can be PCOS, even in menopause, um, you don't just have to be in those peak fertile years. And so I find PCOS to be one of these, it's like the canary in the coal mine. I think for a lot of people, they assume I'm thin phenotype. I couldn't possibly have PCOS. And it's been my experience that it's very, it can be very subtle. You don't have to have classic findings on an ultrasound. Um, more often than not, when I see women with luteal phase defects who are low in progesterone, who are struggling with infertility or having irregular cycles, and it's been that way for years, and it's been masked by synthetic hormones, um, more often than not, um, you know, a first starting place for people like that is really talking to them about ketogenic, low carb diets and eating less often. And just with diet intervention and eating less often, seeing significant and profound changes. And I think that on so many levels, if you're listening, um, and I'm sure, you know, if you are listening to Dr. Estima's podcast, I know that you're already super savvy and smart. But if any of those things sound familiar to you, um, I was one of those people who had a thin phenotype and had a luteal phase defect and went through infertility treatment. And because I was always thin, no one ever said, oh, by the way, you might have mild PCOS. It wasn't until I couldn't get pregnant. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. 
Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And so you better believe as I went through perimenopause and into menopause, like really cognizant of where my testosterone levels were, where my insulin is. And I think that it's important for people to hear that you can with, again, diet and meal frequency, you can absolutely kind of turn, you know, and improve those hormonal profiles so that you can lessen the likelihood you're going to suffer from side effects. Yeah, really, really well said. I think that that's so important that it's not your morphology that determines. So you can, like, there are, there is a subset, of course, of PCOS individuals who are what we would classify as obese. Their BMI would be over 25 and we would, we would classify them that way. But there's just as many uh, who fit, who would not be classified as obese that would fit the diagnostic criteria for that. But as you just said, people don't look for it because there's still this kind of judgment, like this sort of, fe- like you you're more, they're sort of, they make a call in terms of how you look like, well, she can't be obese. And to, you know, just, I'm going to hang my hat on this, but I think that I don't even like the term polycystic because we know that women who don't have PCOS can have the appearance of cysts, right? Which is just an immature follicle. It's not really a cyst, but it's like an immature follicle on the, on the ovary. And then you have women who have PCOS that don't have the presence of those cysts on the ovary anyway. So there's some problems even in the, even in the, in the nomenclature, uh, which I, within the terminology in the, in the vernacular that we use. And I think that that's also important because our language informs the way that we think about things. Right. And this is, I had uh, Dr. Robert Lustig on, uh, maybe it's last year now, maybe it was, I forget when it, when his, when his book came out, uh, I think it was last year. And he was talking about this classification of people. Uh, we, we were talking about this in the context of visceral fat. Uh, and he called them, and it's a medical term. It's, they're called, uh, TOFI, T-O-F-I. So thin on the outside, but fat, meaning visceral fat on the inside. So you can have like, if you look at Cynthia, like you're a petite woman, right? So you wouldn't be like, oh, this woman has metabolic issues, mm-hmm. but PCOS is in part a metabolic problem. Mm-hmm. So thank you for saying that um, so eloquently. Let's talk a little bit about cortisol. Um, and then I want to talk about oxytocin, our favorite, but uh, let's talk about cortisol because I think that it, you talk about this in the book in terms of it drives weight gain in three different ways. So I wanted you to maybe talk about how cortisol drives uh, weight gain and how, what are maybe, what are some strategies? Cause cortisol, again, another one that's demonized, right? It's, mm-hmm. and I love cortisol in little bits, like it's the Goldilocks kind of thing again, but talk, talk to us about how cortisol drives weight gain. Yeah. You know, as you so, so appropriately stated, it's another hormone that gets a really bad rap, but I remind people that we have the autonomic nervous system and we have sympathetic and the parasympathetic and they're designed to be balanced, but most, if not all of us, and especially women, especially people pleasing women tend to be more sympathetic dominant, which tells our body, even if it's not 
It's under duress. We're running a marathon. We're being chased by a rabid animal. And so cortisol in small amounts helps with alertness, um, helps with, you know, getting us through stressful times, but chronically and habitually. And I would speak to the last two years where we've had more stress, unprecedented amounts of stress over time, it wears our bodies down. And so I think it's important to speak to the fact that just on a, on a basic level, we have 40 times more cortisol receptors in our abdomen. So as soon as a woman says to me, I've got a lot of abdominal weight gain, the first thing I think about is let's like dial in on stress. So cortisol um, in, in response to cortisol going up, our body will secrete more blood sugar. It'll actually increase blood sugar. We'll get insulin that will come along trying to desperately drive it down. But when our blood sugar's up, guess what? Insulin is not able to kind of buffer and so it's very, very common when people are chronically stressed, blood sugar's up, insulin's up, they're not getting, the insulin signaling is not working as effectively of getting um, blood sugar back into to our cells. And effectively, I'm oversimplifying this, but really important for people to understand, like chronic, stri- chronic stress states are going to drive, um, they're going to drive weight gain, they're going to drive fat deposition. Um, And this is not just in your head. This is actually something that physiologically will go on because your body is not prioritizing the parasympathetic digesting food, um, you know, sitting back and relaxing, being able to connect and cuddle with your partner because your body thinks they're being chased by a saber toothed tiger or thinks you're running this marathon habitually and chronically. We know that it downregulates key mechanisms in the gut microbiome. So it's going to make you more susceptible for getting infections and, and affects immune response. So when people are saying I'm getting sick more frequently, it's also time. It can also lead to um, this issue. And we know changes in the gut microbiome can also put us at greater risk for weight gain. You know, there's I would say differing research going back and forth that certain certain types of bacteria in the gut can upregulate or down like regulate our likelihood of absorbing more food or absorbing more nutrients from our food um, in some ways to suggest these imbalances can um, whether it's fusiform bacterium, but really looking at how if we're actually obtaining more nutrients from the food that we're consuming, we're going to crave hyperpalatable, more processed carbohydrates. Um, we know when our blood sugar's up, we are also less likely to make good food choices. I think this is really important because when people or women say to me, you know, I'm up late at night, I'm not sleeping quite as well. Um, I, I usually will say, you know, you're not going to crave steak and broccoli. You're going to crave pasta and rice and sweets. And so you're, you're then consuming hyperpalatable foods that make it hard to tell your brain to stop eating. So you kick out these satiety signals, you know, leptin signaling, ghrelin signaling's off. You're not satiated, so you keep eating. That's number two. Um, and I think it's also important to understand that, you know, with insulin being up, you know, insulin is designed to be um, a hormone that allows our sex hormones to function more in a more optimal manner. Again, again, an oversimplification, but I think it's important to kind of talk about the interrelationship between um, where you are in your menstrual cycle, depending on whether or not you're in the follicular phase versus the luteal phase and how this can differentiate how much, you know, calorically we're taking up from our food intake. Yeah. And I think for all the women who are listening, who are like, I'm not listening to that because stress is my competitive advantage. It's what keeps me sharp. Because I, I, let me tell you, I went to that church. I I went. To that, I was like, stress is the way that I stay on my toes. It's how I get things done. It's how I do things with with excellence. It's just what you said. It's it might be temporarily like a transient. Yes, you might 
have, you know, this rush of adrenaline and noradrenaline to help you get stuff done. But eventually it's just, as you said, it wears you out and the opposite actually happens. So in the brain, we know that chronic low grade cortisol, when you are chronically stressed, as Cynthia was just describing, it actually inhibits the ability to draw our memories from the hippocampus. It inhibits, which is the area in the brain for, which is uh, involved in learning and memory. So it's sort of, it's a double, it's that area under the curve argument again, right? Like a little bit, maybe not, you know, not a, not enough. You sort of have this nice, healthy amount of, uh, of good stress. And then if you have too much of it, then we start to see this deleterious, these deleterious effects that happen, um, in the body. And I think it's so important when we think about fasting as well, like you were, you mentioned at the top of our conversation, OMAD, I cannot tell you how many women I counsel that have these orthorexic potentially, uh, we'll, we'll call it a dysregulated relationship, um, with food and like this incessant, uh, desire to lose weight, even though they may have lost five pounds. They just, it's like, okay, now it's just five more, you know? And so they do things like this OMAD, which when done in excess, I mean, you said this at the top of the hour, it is very much a stress, hard to get all the nutrients that we need to function properly, especially if you're a woman in your menstrual years, um, or your menstruating years reproductive years, potentially more accurate way of saying that. So, um, I think, I think the other piece of that is that I find, and this certainly was my case, like once I was in perimenopause and I've tried to find out like the mechanism of action, like, why does this happen? Because when our hormones are well-balanced, we, and this, I'm borrowing this from someone else. I cannot take credit. Um, we're happy, we're horny and we're hungry. And so if you, if you kind of think about it that way, like when our hormones are properly balanced, I think a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal women, their hormones are just balanced, whether or not it's a function of estrogen. I'm not sure. Like I haven't really, I haven't found enough research to, to validate my hypothesis about why this happens in middle age. But a lot of people will say, well, I feel, I feel really good when I just eat one meal a day. And I understand like as a middle-aged woman, I get it. Like I don't have the same hunger that I had in my twenties and thirties and certainly not even at my early forties but there are many, many days where I say to myself, there is no way I've gotten enough food in today. So I'm going to have some protein, some vegetables, and I'm going to shut my feeding window down. And I think it's important for women to understand that you can have a healthy relationship with food and you can, you can go down that rabbit hole unintentionally because um, I, I do frequently, and it's very triggering for a lot of these women, they want to do what they want to do and they don't want to be told what they're doing is, is is worsening or further dysregulating um, hormonal communication in the brain, like really helping them understand that you're not serving yourself well if you're not providing enough nutrients to your body. And I think it's it's particularly harmful when you know you'll see images on social media, and I'm just as guilty as the next person. Sometimes you're on social media, and the next thing you know, you're you're sitting in front of someone's reels, and then you're down looking at their website, and it just becomes this whole encompassing. Um, situation, but I think there are a lot of people on social media who hide their eating disorders in fasting, um, in OMAD, and other things. And so I think we have to be really careful in fitness that, as well. I yes, think you'll I find, say, yes, there, I can think of several, um, yes. several that I definitely like when I look at they look so sarcopenic. Um, at least some of the fitness people, then I'm like, they just look like they they need more nutrients. And I think it's important to also say, like, if you are an athlete and you are a female, if you are someone that's really training hard, there's no way 
you can just eat a compressed feeding window and be able to serve and meet all of your metabolic needs. I think that that just needs to be stated. I think because my team feels like we are, as I'm sure your team does as well, you get a lot of like people who genuinely want help. They're like, why isn't this working? And this is one of the most common things I see is that you cannot sustain a healthy musculature or healthy physiology constricting your calories or constricting your macros, because I prefer to call them macros, constricting your macros to such a small amount, thinking that your body is not going to think you're in a famine state. And we know what goes on, you know, between the brain communication, between the ovaries, if our body perceives that we are in a famine state. And that's why it's so critically important for women in those peak fertile years, for women who are still getting menstrual cycles to make sure their body's getting nourished appropriately. Otherwise it can create a lot of problems. And I'm going to say something that probably people aren't going to like, but you shouldn't have abs all month long. Mm-hmm. You know, like your follicular phase, you know, show them off, take some photos, but your, lute- <laughs> <laughs> your luteal phase, you know, you're just holding on a little bit more. Right. Um, and I think that the, the Instagram thing is, uh, or the, just the social media, I'm, I'm pointing out Instagram because it's more imagery than anything. Um, it can be really damaging in terms of what we think is normal because there's this assumption that, well, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so with their hundreds of thousands and millions of followers uh, are validating this way of eating or this way of fasting. But you do have to be mindful, particularly if you are kind of circling back to the muscle conversation. You want to build muscle. Muscles are hungry. You need to feed them to grow. And I have a, a program, like a, a glute building program. So I'm really, you know, for rehab, for back pain, and also just to look good in a bikini. Let's just be honest. You know, we want to have nice round glutes. And, you know, I remember the first time I was uh, talking to this group of women who had signed up. I was like, okay, so you're gonna, we're going to figure out what your, you know, your caloric, um, you know, maintenance level is. And then you're going to eat like 200 calories above that. I, kid you not, Cynthia, like a third of them, like almost fainted. They were like, what? I thought we were doing this to like lose weight. And I was like, yes, you can lose weight and build muscle, but it's so much harder to do it that way than it is to be in a build phase where you are in a caloric surplus and then move into a cut phase where you are in a caloric deficit, um, which is maybe a, a conversation for another time. But it is really, really important uh, what you just said, because we do have women. I see women all the time that have been it's entrained in us as, as women to like be as small as we can, right? To be as thin and tiny and, you know, shrink, you know, as as much as we can. And I think that um, at least, you know, part of the reason why this podcast exists and why I have guests like you on here is because I want women to get used to taking up more space and Mm. it's okay to order your own meal. Like there's a, I saw this on, actually, I saw this on Instagram the other day. It was like a, a menu from a restaurant and it was, you know, like burger, fries, salads, whatever. And then at the bottom, it was like, uh, my girlfriend's not hungry was the menu item. Right. And it was like $3. And then it got you like an extra patty and extra fries or whatever. And it's like, just eat, like be okay with eating strong girls, eat food. Well, so. I, think, I think it's an important message. And one that I think many, many women, whatever messages they heard growing up or imagery that they heard, it's important that we eat, that we nourish our bodies. And I, I think, you know, certainly programs like yours that are encouraging women to like not be so cognitively dissonant that they can't imagine like, okay, I have to trust the process. Like half of it is saying, I'm going to trust in the wisdom of Stephanie's experiences with this to know that this is what I need to be doing. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk about oxytocin. This is the one I'm really excited about. I was saying to you in the pre-chat, like no one talks about oxytocin. Let's talk about its relationship with insulin and then how uh, maybe it fluctuates in our menstrual cycle and how we can optimize uh, our oxytocin, uh, oxytocin uh, cadence and secretion. Yeah, I mean, oxytocin in many ways is thought of as this kind of mother hormone, you know, the hormone that kind of governs all these other hormones in our bodies. And I think it's important for people to understand that when it comes to oxytocin, it's this like nurturing hormone. It's the hormone that I think for many people, they think of as, you know, when a woman is breastfeeding her child and just how bonded you feel. I mean, it's really this bonding hormone and it's complex in a relationship with insulin. You know, it's not the, you know, this, this complex in a relationship and the understanding that when oxytocin is optimized, your insulin levels are going to be lower, your cortisol levels are going to be lower. And so, you know, finding strategies in our day-to-day life, like insulin is fleeting. So when it's secreted, it doesn't hang around for a long period of time. So I think the joke is that you want to, not the joke, the fact is that you want to evoke um, stimulating insulin throughout the day, because it's not like it hangs around for hours, it hangs around for minutes. And so the best example I can give you is I have two dogs who love lots of affection and throughout the day, I give them hugs, I rub their ears, I rub their back. And that's good for both of us. It's good for them. It's good for me. Um, of course, my husband just left for a business trip, but you know, hugging your spouse, connecting with people that you love, um, you know, just thinking about something joyful, connecting with your infant, like when women breastfeed, that's part of that bonding hormone. And so just the acknowledgement that by secreting insulin, by secreting oxytocin in the body, we are doing a beautiful job of naturally lowering cortisol response. We're lowering insulin as well. And how this can be hugely instrumental. Someone's saying they're stuck, they plateaued, they can't lose weight. I'm always saying like doing something joyful, something that brings you joy is as important as the exercise, the food choices we make, the sleep quality that we make. And I think, unfortunately, because this is less tangible, people choose not to focus on it, but it's actually the hormone. Like when I'm talking to a group of women, it's oftentimes what I start with, because if they understand that, then it opens up a whole new level of possibility for them um, in terms of finding hormonal balance. I mean, balance is elusive, but finding better balance for them in their current circumstances. And I think that's so important for women to be chasing or finding joy. Mm-hmm. You know, like to find what makes you happy. So maybe that is buying yourself some flowers or maybe it's, you know, buying yourself, uh, I don't know, some new trainers for your workout or going for a walk, spending time in nature, you know, getting together, you know, with your friends or whatever it is. I, I think that that's so important because we are naturally, uh, as women just in society, we're natural, I mean, nurturing and natural caregivers, very much uh, always thinking about, at least, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my role as a mom. Like I'm always thinking about my boys, like what do, you know, what do they need next? Trying to anticipate like when food needs to be be ready. You know, the laundry needs to be done. I need to take them to soccer practice, blah, 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 blah. They need to, you know, debrief and tell me about their day and there's playtime and all that. So I'm always thinking about how I can make their lives better. But sometimes, and I do this all the time, I forget about what makes me happy. I forget about doing the things that make me happy. So, um, you know, one of the practices that has been really helpful for me, particularly in the pandemic, is I've invested in weights and like more of a home gym so that, you know, the gyms have been closed and stuff. So um, to kind of circumvent that, that challenge. But in the morning, that's my time. Like mm-hmm. I wake up before the kids, I go downstairs, I do my hour, and then they're kind of waking up by the time I'm done. And then we have our little morning together. And I think 
in a really busy woman's uh, schedule, maybe looking at a calendar and saying like, where can I, where can I do some joy time? Like, where's my joy? You know, maybe workout, maybe the exercise doesn't bring you joy. It makes me, it makes me feel like a beast. So I feel happy. (laughs) That's my, (laughs) that's my joy. But maybe someone else, it might be going for a walk. You know, it might be journaling. It might be doing like taking a bath or, you know, whatever it is, giving yourself a mani-pedi, which I did last night. That made me like, I don't know what it is about mani-pedi, Cynthia. They make me feel like I'm winning in life. Like if I can figure out... So that's my, that's my little, my little spiel there on, on oxytocin and finding some love for you. And I think it's, it's important. It might be very different for all of us. Like I'm at a stage with teenagers that they need me in different ways. Um, I kind of feel like I'm like the backup quarterback. I was telling my husband that the other night, I was like, it's kind of a weird place to be after being in this yummy years and years and years with boys and, and having different relationships now as they're teenage young men. Um, one of the things I've been able to do is be able to like spend more time reading and I'm a gigantic nerd. I love to learn. And so my husband laughs, like some days I'm like, I just want two hours to listen to Peter Atia's podcast as an example, so that I can learn about something that maybe will bring greater value to my clients, or maybe it's a book I need to read. And so really finding like, it can be as simple as sitting outside and getting sunshine or giving, you know, honoring your, your body by being able to find the time to do a manicure and pedicure. I think that's awesome. I just mm-hmm. think it's all different for all of us, but I've just come to find out like, as my kids get older, it definitely starts to shift a little bit and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I think that's a great thing. Cause you have more time to focus on you. That's it's one of the beautiful things. To be. Yeah. Strange place. Let, let's talk about perimenopause. We've been sort of leading up to it um, and talking about it really throughout this conversation. But how does fasting change in perimenopause and then maybe in our menopausal years as well? I think the way we enter perimenopause is a litmus test of how well we're taking care of ourselves. And I couldn't have said that 10 years ago because I didn't know any better, but now I do. And so I think it's really the time we have to level up self-care. It's the time we have to level up taking care of ourselves because if we don't, we will have more problems, symptoms transitioning from the five to 10 years preceding menopause, which is what perimenopause is. And so this is when I get really specific about stress management, sleep quality, anti-inflammatory nutrition. I get very specific about types of exercise Um, because if we optimize those things and if we lean into where we are in our cycle, we are going to do much better. And then the eating less often piece can oftentimes be like the missing link. Cause I had done all the other things. It was the eating less often piece was the last thing in perimenopause that made the biggest difference. So I think when we start to understand what's happening in our bodies in terms of sleep, um, as our ovaries are producing, less progesterone heading into perimenopause. This may manifest as anxiety and depression. It can manifest as sleep disturbances. Um, We have to ratchet in on that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every person has to take medication, Um, but it could be that it may be that you lean into specific types of foods that you um, have to have a better sleep hygiene. Like I think about sleep when I get up in the morning, like I'm already preparing my body Um, Maybe it's removing inflammatory foods. And I'm sure your listeners know that those are things like gluten and grains and dairy, depending on who you are, it could be alcohol. Alcohol seems to be one of those like big elusive things that we know in perimenopause can really dysregulate melatonin secretion, increase cortisol. It can impact sleep quality. 
um, can ultimately impact blood sugar. And Lord knows when I used to drink alcohol, which I don't anymore, um, and I never had a problem. I just gave it up because it impacted my sleep so negatively. I never made good food choices. It was unfortunate, but it was like I wouldn't crave the really good food. I'd end up craving the stuff I shouldn't be eating. And then thinking about timing of your exercise for where you are in your cycle. And hopefully in the beginning of perimenopause, your cycles are still pretty regular. So you're able to determine like where that follicular phase is, where the luteal phase is, um, you know, leaning into acknowledging that there are certain times during the month when we can push the lever on fasting and times when we should back off on it. And so I find for many women, if they're, they're tuned into those key areas, that that, that period before they go into menopause, 12 months without a menstrual cycle, is pretty benign. Um, those are women that have better balanced blood sugar, their ins fasting insulin levels are lower, their inflammatory markers are lower. They maintain a healthy weight. They don't have hot flashes. Like I think hot flashes are, and, and based on research and everything I've read, hot flashes are, are more often a reflection of blood sugar dysregulation. I think people think about it so much. Oh, it's all related to estrogen. And I, I tell people that um, that's always like a sign that something is off. And that was one reason why I stopped drinking alcohol. I would get hot flashes. It was like the only time I would get a hot flash and it was so uncomfortable, even though mine were pretty benign. I was like, goodness, between the sleep and the blood sugar and the blood sugar dysregulation related to the alcohol use. I'm like, I can just have my mocktail and, you know, go to parties and just be totally fine. So I think again, perimenopause is a litmus test for how well we're taking care of ourselves and especially for women with small children, with children in general, with significant other spouses, we have a tendency to give to everyone and then worry about ourselves last. And this is a time if you really want to have a healthy, happy middle-aged time period, it's really a time to be reflecting on what you're doing well and to be honest enough with yourself to say, what is no longer serving me and either replacing it or finding alternatives if it's something that you really enjoy. I'll give you an example. I mean, I was, I've been gluten-free for over 10 years and that put a, an autoimmune issue into remission. But one of the things I, I had to give up because it kept me so inflamed was dairy. And it was a hard decision. I didn't realize how much I liked dairy and how much dairy was a part of my lifestyle until I removed it. And once it was removed, I mean, that perimenopause weight that I could not get rid of went completely away. And it just goes to show you even like sporadic use of an inflammatory food for your body can have an enormous impact on weight you're carrying on, you're hanging on to. And so for me, I was delighted. My, my family was like shocked, but I just said, if this is what it takes for me to be healthier, because I could tell I was inflamed because I would sometimes get like ankle pain or foot pain. And so taking dairy out of my diet, but it can get more nuanced than that. I, I find some women have to remove, you know, some of the plant-based compounds like oxalates and saponins and, um, you know, other things that, but I think, or lectins, but for that matter, it's really determining for you, what do you need to do to help keep your, you know, your, your cortisol balanced to keep your, your sanity. And the last thing I want to add to that, you know, you are on this incredible platform talking a lot about physical activity and strength training. And so for me, the days of doing like really hardcore conditioning, like almost CrossFit ass types of workouts were gone. They completely messed with my sleep and did not serve me. I could go lift heavy and I would do fine and I could do hit in short amounts and I could walk, but I had to honor and I just do more yoga, <laughs> more yin yoga, um, really honoring where I was that those really hard I'm going to pick on orange theory fitness, but there are women that are doing that five or six days a week. And they're like, I don't understand why I can't lose weight. 
And I was like, well, we used to serve us in our twenties and thirties does not serve us. If we're working at that intensely four or five days a week and wondering why we can't lose weight. And again, it's talking about the cortisol cortisol goes up because it thinks you're running a marathon every day. You're going to really struggle. So that's kind of been my, you know, end of a couple thousand, you know, working with women at that stage of life, like the people that do the best navigating into menopause are the ones that dial in and find appropriately way, appropriate ways to challenge yourself, but not do it in a way that you are overtaxing your adrenals, overtaxing cortisol, dysregulating your sex hormones worse than they already are. As we kind of make that transition where we have less circulating progesterone, a bit more estrogen dominance for most people, maybe faltering testosterone levels, which all impact, you know, every way, every way that we perceive our lives. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I, I have, uh, I wear a couple of wearables. I have aura and I have the whoop that I wear and anytime I have a glass of wine and it's not, we're not talking about a lot of wine. Like I'm a lightweight when it comes to <laughs> like one glass is like, I will nurse that all night. But if mm-hmm. I, if I have that one glass like my body temperature goes up. Like the next day, my aura is like, what's happened? What, what did you do? You know, like my body temperature goes up. My resting heart rate goes up. My respiratory rate goes up. My HRV, my heart rate variability goes down, which is, you know, not good. You want your HRV to be as high as you possibly can. Being my HRV just is already like just low to begin with. Like I, I struggle uh, to actually have good HRV, we'll call it that. Like I sort of go between 20, like if I get 40 on my HRV, like I'm doing really well. And I don't know if that's like a genetic component past stress and trauma that is still living in my nervous system or what, but alcohol is such a big thing. It's such, and for, and I think, you know, with the pandemic, with the past two years, and you have just, even before that, I would counsel women who were like, I just have a glass or two with my husband in the evening to wind down from the day. And it actually does, at least from what the data suggests, the opposite of helping you wind down. You know, you may fall asleep faster, but it's not sleep. It's not the sleep that we're actually after. You're just unconscious. You know, you're not getting the, um, well, I find that my deep sleep has not really changed, but like everything else, like my REM sleep, my light sleep, uh, my non-REM sleep is all uh, terrible. And that's something that uh, it's hard to hear uh, for someone who might be drinking one or two glasses of e- wine in the evening to to wind down. But sleep, as you were saying, is not something you can bottle. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the one thing you can't, you know, you, you have to get good sleep. And that's sort of the precursor to the energy that we were talking about, the hormonal fluctuations that we were talking about. And then when it's, it's just liquid sugar. So kind of back to what we were talking about with insulin, you know, you're going to jack up your insulin, which is going to uh, kind of give you that type of hyper and like that, you know, higher androgens and or higher estrogens. Um, as well. So what are some of the, you know, if someone has never fasted, like someone who I have a 45 year old woman who's listening to the show now, she's never fasted before. What might be some of the first couple of steps that you might counsel her on to increase her fasting tolerance? And then how might she prepare for a successful fast? And then I guess my second question when you're done answering that is, and how do you break the fast? Yeah. So I would say first and foremost, if you're a standard American diet, couch potato, and this is really your first foray, 
we have to stop snacking. So the whole methodology of snacking between meals, snacking after dinner has to end um, because that will force you to restructure your macros. So when you sit down for your first meal, you're going to be protein focused, non-starchy vegetables, fats, if you need them. Like if you have a ribeye, you've already got the fats in it. But if you have a filet, and I'm just using this as an example because I've used it quite a bit today, um, that that's really the methodology. So higher protein, non-starchy vegetables, that's a good starting place for most people. Um, and I find that we really look at it as we're going to fast from dinner to breakfast. That's a starting point. That might be 14 hours, but most of that time you will be spent sleeping. And that can be very challenging, especially if you go home from work and you have some sweets after dinner and then you have alcohol and all of a sudden that goes away. That is a major shift. So really starting from that 14 hours. And if you're 45 years old, still getting your menstrual cycle, this is something you would start at the beginning of your menstrual cycle. This would not be, don't do this the week before your menstrual cycle. You will set yourself up for, um, you'll hate it. Yeah. (laughs) You'll be very unhappy. So really what you're aiming for is for that first two weeks of your menstrual cycle, you might go 14 hours one day. And if you're feeling pretty good a couple of days later, you can go to 14 and a half then to 15. I find that it really depends on how carbohydrate dependent someone is, how quickly we can get them to being much more fat adapter where they can utilize flex between utilizing ketones and and glucose for, for fuel. And so for some people that could be two weeks for others, it might take a bit longer and that's okay. Like each one of us are individuals. I think the most important thing about honoring our bodies is that when we are in a fasted state, it's really, I'm a fan of a clean fast. So I'm really looking at bitter, bitter tea. So black tea, green tea, it's meant to be bitter. Um, plain coffee. Um, you can add salt, um, which will change the profile, but it's not going to break a fast or even there's good research to show that cinnamon can change the flavor profile enough, make it less bitter will help with insulin sensitivity or water. Do you like dandelion tea? That's my favorite. Do you like dandelion tea or is that? I do. You know, it's, it's funny how I've kind of have gotten. It's like the throwaway plant. Everyone's like, ugh, weed. I'm like, (laughs) I love dandelions. Well, and it's like now I drink so much bitter tea that I don't want to taste anything that's so I've now become a little a little bit of a tea kind of sore just because I've tried so many teas to kind of get a sense for which one has higher polyphenol content, uh, which has a lot of beneficial compounds in a fasted state. So when you're getting ready to break a fast, when you aren't feeling like you want to eat everything and anything, because sometimes people fast too long and then their amygdala overrides the prefrontal cortex and they want to eat everything. That's a sign you need to break your fast. But if you're, you're getting ready to break a fast, some people, it's a little bit of experimentation. Some people want to break it with bone broth. Some people want to have a light salad. Maybe they're not, they're not ready for a, a bigger meal, always with protein. Fasting always is always broken with protein and either some healthy fats or protein and a high quality carbohydrate. I think it depends on where you are in time and space. On days I lift, I am much more cognizant of getting in some healthy carbs, small amounts, because I'm at a stage where I don't need a lot, um, but really being cognizant of what I'm eating, but always protein, non-starchy vegetables, because that's going to help with fiber, phytonutrients, et cetera. And then adding in fats if they're not already there and being cognizant of those. Um, I know you're a fan of this as well. And then the carbohydrates, it really depends. Like I'm more squash, sweet potato, root vegetables, low glycemic berries, a tart apple, um, maybe some citrus fruits. That's that's where most of my carbohydrates kind of reside because I'm gluten, grains, and dairy-free. It really depends on what works for you. I find people need to experiment with, do they need a smaller meal when they break their fast with the expectation that they're going to maybe have a larger meal in an hour? 
or can they sit down and have a big meal, like 40, 50 grams of protein, be satiated, walk away and then not eat again for four or five hours. So I always say like, do a little bit of experimentation. And this sometimes freaks people out because they don't like, <laughs> they don't like not, they, they like to, to be told what to do as opposed to experimentation. Cause that's a little scarier. You got to play. Right. You got, you got to play. Cause what's going to work for Cynthia is not mm-hmm. may or may not work for me. May I not work for you. And that's kind of the play. That's sort of the joy piece as well, because we have to be okay with playing mm-hmm. and then okay with being a beginner. It's okay to fail, right? It's okay. Right. As long as you learn from what didn't work. Yep. And I think it's, it's really important, especially if you're still cycling to really know where you are in your cycle. I get DMS from doctor friends all the time. And they're like freaked out. Why can't I fast? You know, uh, you know, like I barely made it to 14 hours. So I'm like, where are you in your cycle? I'm going to get my period in two days. I'm like, that's why (laughs) go ahead and eat. But I'm like, you need to lean into your physiology. Now, the beauty of not being at peak fertile years or not being in perimenopause, being in menopause is that women have a lot more flexibility. You still have that lifestyle piece that's critically important, but you don't have as much fluctuation in your sex hormones. And so women oftentimes, this is the only time I will say this, can act more like a guy in that they don't have as much restriction because there's not as much hormonal flux. With that being said, they still have to sleep well. They still have to lean into their exercise. They still have to eat the anti-inflammatory nutrition. They still have to manage and mitigate their stress. That doesn't go away, but it makes you certainly feel um, like you have a bit more flexibility in what you can do, when you can fast, how long you fast. Like my husband and I could fast the same way if we chose to, uh, you know, just based on the fact of where I am. But with that being said, it's really just honoring where you are in time and space. I know that when I don't get good sleep, I won't fast as long. And so this is important. Like I know when I'm traveling, sometimes I'll fast longer because I'm in an airport or I'm in an environment where I can't eat the way I want to just acknowledging that depending on where we are in our cycles, where we are in our lifestyle, if we're traveling, et cetera, you can adjust those, those variables to work to your advantage. In fact, I think that um, now that fasting is such a large part of our lifestyle to me, it's so much, I have to worry about a whole lot less, like less food prep, less meal prep, less cooking. Um, I see it as a win-win on so many levels. (laughs) It's like, who wants to cook? No one. Great. We'll fast. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's like, hmm, that's what I'm doing today. Yeah. So what is your, so in, when you are in your environment, so when you're in your home and you have your natural sort of routines, what does your fasting regimen look like? My body. So I do really well with a fasting window between 10 and six, 10 and five. That's just where my body naturally, like if I get, cause I work out early, kids get on the bus. I start working 10, 11 o'clock is when I typically will break a fast. I will break it with a real meal. It's my biggest meal of the day is what I break my fast with. And then I will usually shut my feeding window. This has been the benefit of the pandemic as I realized my body actually doesn't want to eat at seven o'clock and I didn't want to eat earlier. And so I can lean into that. My kids are very accepting of the fact that I will sit down with them at dinner time, but I may not be eating at seven or eight o'clock at night, but they're teenagers and they're very athletic. Um, and that's just, that's just worked well for me. I definitely have days where I can feel I need more food. And so when I feel that way, I don't deprive myself. I try to really just say, if I'm, if I'm hungry enough to eat protein, then I'm hungry. And so that's kind of my barometer that I use to, you know, get a sense for whether or not I'm, I'm craving crap or am I craving real food? And I think that it's important for people to understand that 
this is what my schedule looks like most days, two meals in a seven or an eight hour feeding window. Some days, if it's really busy, today's a good example. I'm breaking my fast later than I normally would. And that's okay. And I will probably close my feeding window at my normal time. So I may get two meals in in a, in a more compressed time frame, And that's just what I've found has worked really well for me. For me personally, depending because of where I am life stage wise, uh, my, my aura ring, um, my, my glucometer, my continuous glucose monitor, my data supports me eating earlier in the day. Like that is much more aligned. And I tell people, you know, if you look at circadian biology, if you look at the research that's done on, you know, the super nucleus and the melatonin secretion, melatonin clocks, it really supports eating during the daytime and not eating at nighttime. But that's not to suggest that never happens. You know, I celebrated Valentine's day with my husband a couple of days ago and we went out ate later than I normally did. My um, aura ring and everything else told me that was, you know, did not, did not love that I did all those things. But with that being said, you know, that's the beauty is that you can adjust as you need to. I love that. Well said. I too have found when I first started fasting many, many years ago, first started writing about it, I was doing the breaking the fast at noon and then, you know, an eight hour eating window, I was cutting it off at about eight. And I found with time, Waiting until 12 was really difficult for me, especially if I was working out in the morning. So yeah. I would lift and then not eat anything after and then wait until 12. And I was like, man. So I started slowly kind of, there's been a phase, like a shift in time for me, very similar to you, where I will typically finish my um, workout, let's say somewhere around seven. Mm -hmm. uh, and I will, I will actually start eating, uh, you know, I'm making breakfast with the boys. I usually have like a protein shake and some carbohydrates. So I'll mm -hmm. start eating around there. And then mm -hmm. I stop around four, like yeah. three or four. So I'm very like, I did like 10 to six for a little bit. And then I've started, I'm, I've been in a, at least in the past year, I've been in a bit of a build phase uh, for, you know, with my muscle uh, program or fitness programming. So I found that I've needed to shift that food earlier in the day. And when I finish at, like, I sort of laugh about it. I'm like, I feel like my grandmother, like going to the restaurant and getting like the seniors discount because I'm eating at four in the afternoon. Yeah. But I, I, I feel so much better doing that. Yeah. I'm yeah. the same way. And it's funny. My 16 year old was making fun of us because we made dinner reservations early on Friday night. Yeah. He's like, what do you guys like the grandparents? And I just looked at him and I said, I'm not even explaining to you the physiology behind why I do that. And he was just like, Ugh, you know, oh, so embarrassed. Look at my mother. But I said, we came home and it was like, we got home and it was like 830 at night. And my husband and I got to, you know, hang out together and watch a movie with our kids. And they thought it was, they got a pizza. They didn't care. They were just mm -hmm. happy they got fed. But yeah, it's to me, the older I get, the more I lean into what my body needs. And so Last night I was in bed at nine o'clock at night, like out, totally out. My husband's like, I came home from carpooling with, you know, lacrosse and swim team. And he's like, you were in bed. And he's like, I don't think you said anything. I think you were asleep. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, I need some nights like that. There are certain days where I just, I'm like, I cannot talk again. I cannot do more work. Um, my kids are all situated. My husband's situated. The dogs are situated. Now I need to just honor what my body's telling me. It's like, I need to go to, I'm soaking magnesium and I'm going to go to bed. Those are some good boundaries, my friend. I love it. <laughs> love it. So tell us about, uh, so the book, uh, we are going to be releasing this conversation around the week that the book comes out, but I know that there's some bonuses um, that also come with the pre-purchase of the book. So do you want to tell us about what those are? Yeah. One of them is a program that I used to teach concurrently with IF45 called Clean and 14. So it's really two weeks of like cleaning up your diet, 
making changes that have a huge net impact on your results with IF45. So that's one bonus. Um, another one is a masterclass that I'm going to be teaching prior to release date. So if you purchase the book prior to March 15th, um, and this is going to be diving into some of the biggest problem areas that I see with women trying to capitalize on weight loss, plateaus, fasting, et cetera. Um, and then lastly, the same woman who wrote the delicious recipes that are in the book, Beth Lipton, wrote a bonus group of recipes that are sweet treats. And I'll be very clear. I am a huge proponent of we we as individuals enjoying our food and not feeling like we have to feel hampered. And so these are clean treats that you can enjoy that are not going to derail all of your goals. Amazing. So we will make sure that all of those are in the show notes. So just easy to click uh, in the show notes here. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on your book, baby, and wishing you all the success in the world with, you know, the, the body of literature that, you know, the work that you've put out, I think is so, so needed. We need more bodies of work like this that really address the female, uh, a female centric approach, uh, at least to some of these, these tools like fasting. So thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.